You're listening to the Bootstrap SaaS Operator, the podcast where we interview founders who are actually in the trenches. We talk about the transparent journey of how they built their SaaS companies, how they grow them, and what they would do differently if they would do it all over. Hey, folks, we have a very special guest today with Justin, the co-founder of Empire Flippers. Justin, super happy to have you on. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Awesome. Usually we have SaaS people on, so my question is always, what problem does your product solve? I mean, a ton of people likely know Empire Flippers, but I would still love to just get the brief background on you and the company. Yeah, so my co-founder and I started Empire Flippers. It was originally AdSense Flippers, but we started the company back in 2010, and we were solving the need for like, how do you exit a small affiliate site or a small website or a small startup? You know, sure, if you want to sell your, you know, $100 million, $500 million company, there are routes and brokers you can go through. But if you want to sell your $150,000 affiliate site or kind of smaller startup, where do you go to do that? And there weren't any great options back then. And so we kind of scratched our own niche. You know, we had a Twitter background company. This is when that was a thing um, that we wanted to sell and there wasn't a great place to sell it. And we were creating all these affiliate sites and we wanted to sell them. So we basically created Empire Flippers as a marketplace to match profitable online businesses with investors and acquirers who wanted to buy those businesses. So while we were doing this, you know, we scaled from you know, my business partner and a couple of vet, uh, VAs and to a team of, uh, at our peak, I think we had around 70-something people. Um, and as we were kind of going along, we realized that the problem with buying an online business is a very active investment, right? You invest in it, and then you're now kind of working in the business, anything from five hours a week to 50, depending on how much work it requires. And we realized, you know, it'd be really nice if we could come up with something that was passive, like where people could invest in these online businesses and make them passive. And so that's the second company we founded, which is a company called WebStreet, webstreet.co, which we can get into later, of course. Awesome. And then how big is the company? Basically, if you put both WebStreet and Empire Flippers into one bucket, how, how big is that? It's tough because like they're very separate. Empire Flippers is the bigger company. It was originally uh, founded and um, is the profitable company. So in total, we've sold um, just under $500 million uh, worth of businesses. Um, I think this year we'll do around, in terms of fees that we collect, around six and a half, seven million uh, in fees. And we have, I think, uh, an email list um, and buyer seller list of around 300,000-ish uh, people on our list. So um, Empire of the is pretty large. Uh, WebStreet is smaller. It's more startup-y. It's only been around for a couple of years. Um, and I think we've raised a total of, we, we do multiple rounds raising uh, for operators uh, that, that are you know, acquiring businesses to run. And we've raised about $27 million on behalf of our operators so far. Interesting. And then with Empire Flippers, I mean, you're 13 years in. How long ago did you start WebStreet? Because I, I think a lot of people are like in year four, five, or six, and then they get itchy to start the next thing. So like, uh, when, when did you uh, got itchy to start the next thing? Oh, so, okay. We got itchy to start the next thing like six months into our company, right? Like anyone <laughs> does, right? I mean, you're like starting your company and then you're like, ooh, squirrel, right? Shiny object over there I want to chase after. So the good thing is, is that we resisted most of those temptations. Um, I think the worst thing you can do as a founder, one of the worst things you can do is like constantly chase after new projects or new startups, right? 
And this is really um, easy to do when you're kind of early days. I think when you're younger too, and you're just starting out, it's like, ooh, there's this new thing. There's this new hot new trend I want to like tr- try to build a business around. But the problem with that is like any of your friends, peers, coworkers, friends and family, if they want to refer to you, it's really hard to do it. If one year you're doing you know, e-commerce and the next year you have a SaaS startup and the next year you're a crypto bro and the, the year after that you're like AI, right? Because like, how do I refer you clients? How do I refer you business? Because I don't even know what you do anymore. So like I, I, I use it, I business it as like, you want to be the blah, blah, blah guy. And by blah, 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 I mean, just be that guy. You're, you help people with HubSpot. And I've done this for 10 years, right? Like I'm a HubSpot expert. I will come in and just totally revamp your HubSpot or whatever, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. But like, if you're known as that guy, you're the guy that does that. I can refer you business. I can send, you know, other peers, other entrepreneurs your way and say, oh, this is my blah, blah, blah guy. This is my HubSpot guy. This is my sell your business guy. Like this is the guy you work with. So, you know, it's really, it's tempting. And I think deceivingly tempting to chase after new projects, but doing like your one thing for a very long time opens up a lot of doors. I mean, it's so true. And I tapped in that door, uh, in in that trap, like heavily in the past. So I I know the feeling. We all do. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm I like, yeah. this is, I'm telling you. And then I'm like, yeah. ooh, I got sucked in too. So you just be, be careful with it. And when we've resisted that temptation, um, we feel good about it after the fact. We're like, oh, we could have done that. But no, we kept doing our thing yeah. and, and, uh, and it helped. Yeah. It worked. But then before starting Web Street, I mean, how did you know that it was the time, the right time to start to go after the next opportunity and then how did you evaluate is that the opportunity we want to go after yeah so uh, when you have a business and it's running you've got product market fit and things are successful varying levels of successful crushing it or doing pretty well you know things are going along there's just a lot of opportunities that kind of pop up and you know my business partner at empire flippers and i were both a little slow and so it takes us a while it takes like you know customers or potential customers kind of beating us up about it to let us know, hey, we kind of need this. This is something that's needed in the marketplace. And we're like, you know, okay, a couple of people have said it, but like, it's a lot of hassle to start a new business too. And it's like, there's so much work that would go into it. There's risk, there's financial risk. We got a good thing going over here. Why bother? And eventually, you know, they beat you down enough to where you're like, okay, there's something here. We have to do it. So To be specific about it, you know, Empire Flippers, we were helping people, you know, buy and sell websites. And they started off like small affiliate sites selling for $20,000, $30,000, you know, making a thousand bucks a month and then kind of scaled up and people doing, you know, $5,000 a month in profit and 15 and 40 and $100,000 a month in profit. So much larger companies. And along the way, we had a lot of people that came along and said, look, you know, I want to buy a business. You know, I've got a couple hundred thousand dollars to invest, but, you know, maybe I've, I've never done it before. Right. So I've never bought online business or I've never run an online business. I'm, I come from the offline space and I want to get involved. And like we turned a lot of these customers away. Right. Another thing was like people who had the skills, but they were just too busy with their job or their other um, entrepreneurial ventures to really devote the time. And we're kind of like, sorry, you know, nothing for you um, because it does take time to run an online business you're going to purchase. And so there's a very specific you know, need there, but we, there's a, there's a quality problem. There's people with all this money and, and money they're willing to invest, 
right? But they don't have the skills or the time to do it. And so we were like, that's a problem we should solve. Like there's money to be made there. There's not a um, an interest problem. There's a, a demand problem. So like, is there supply? Can't Do we have enough operators, successful operators that have run the online businesses that we can prove and verify that can then run these online businesses for them and deliver them a passive return? And our unique advantage at Empire Flippers is we've been buying and selling, real buy and sell businesses for over a decade. So we've got this huge list of people that have sold with us, that have bought with us, that have had successful exits and acquisitions that we can draw from. So we can pull all of their information and find operators to run businesses for WebStreet. So yeah, we were kind of uh, drawn into it due to lots and lots of requests for it. We finally said, hey, let's try and put something together here. And that's how we created WebStreet. We created those three of us, those three co-founders, me, my business partner at Empire Flippers, Joe Magnotti, and Mike Vrankovich, who was a previous employee at Empire Flippers and kind of helped us solve the problem. If you need to hire the right developers and ship fast, then React Squad is for you. A boutique agency that specializes in React and only works with fast growth startups. Visit reactsquad.io to learn more. So in a way, the the market opportunity like pulled you on your hair towards that and then you had the unique advantage right i mean if you would have started that 10 years ago out of nothing you wouldn't have the people the operators you wouldn't have the people wanting to invest so you basically had both sides of that marketplace plus you have 10 years of experience on how to run an actual marketplace which is like usually a crazy hard business to even get up the ground yeah, marketplaces are, I mean, it's really difficult to be founder of anything always, right? But it's particularly difficult with a marketplace because a dual-sided marketplace, you've got both sides. So at Empire Flippers, you know, we have people looking to sell their business and we have people looking to potentially buy uh, online businesses, right? And so maybe you, you start with one and you have to find the other or you start with neither and you've got to build both sides of the market and it can be tough. Um, luckily, uh, through Empire Flippers, we had already had um, bits of both sides of the market. So we have people that have money that we're looking to invest in businesses that maybe not have the time. And we have a nice uh, stable of operators uh, that were there. So it was, it was a huge advantage to us starting Web Street as opposed to starting Empire Flippers from scratch. Empire Flippers was a much harder start. And the way we kind of solved that, we didn't solve it. it we just kind of like, you know, it was what we started with, uh, was we were building our own niche websites. So little, you know, AdSense monetized sites um, uh, that were making money um, on a monthly basis via AdSense. And so we built a team and a process to create these small sites. So we were kind of like, you know, um, supplying our own inventory. So our initial solution, we started Empire Flippers in the marketplace, was we already had the supply. Can we build demand on the purchase side? And so I think that's really helpful if you're building, you know, it's a unique problem with a marketplace, a double-sided marketplace is like, how do you get one or the other um, uh, access to either you know, the supplier demand? And then how do you build up the other side? Definitely. And then, I mean, if you look back five years ago and then 10 years ago, and then towards today, what's something that you do distinctly different from like the founder and leader position the company like what's something where 10 years ago i mean you were newer to the game then five years ago you were like oh yeah i learned a ton already and then now you think like wait that was like totally off i'm doing that way differently now yeah it's it's interesting because it's actually this it's the same 
I'll give you an example. It's the same problem, but it's on both ends of it. So early days, we didn't hire fast enough. So, you know, we had uh, a tiger by its tail, so to speak, or whatever. Like, you know, we, we had a lot of growth opportunity, but we didn't really capitalize because we were a little nervous about hiring too quickly and kind of scaling the business, particularly in the early days when we already had product market fit. There was demand. People were hungry for what we were offering, but we were like, oh, let's take it a little easy. And later in the game, I'd say, and this is, this is much more recently in 2020, 2021, we started scaling a little too quickly. So we said, look, let's just, we, we were hiring a recruiter, like we <laughs> directly hired a recruiter to help us like hire a ton of people. We started scaling up the business. And I think we grew a little too quickly in 2021 and we had to scale back. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hot and cold thing, but at least for us early days, we were slow to hire. And later days when we started, uh, um, uh, you know, smoking our own supply, whatever, like, oh my God, we can crush this. We're going to the moon. Right. And so we started scaling, I think a little too quickly. I think, uh, there's some kind of like Goldilocks zone there. That's probably helpful, but early days, definitely higher, faster. And it's a really good thing to look at. Like as you're adding the first employee, second employee, third employee, look at what happens to your revenue. Look at what happens to your growth. And we found like those early hires significantly added to our growth. It, it, it hurt our profits um, because you're now adding the salary, but like, you know, in the long run that, um, vastly outweighed, you know, the expenses that we we're putting on. How do you manage profits in general? I mean, there's a couple of people now who go with like the profits, profit first mentality, meaning they just say, I take like 10% off the table every month or whatever. How do, how do you manage like profitability versus growth? Yeah. Profit first. So Joe and I are both familiar with that model. Um, we've implemented some of the things we learned uh, through the profit first approach. Um, I'd say early days, we, we, um, we didn't take many profits or distributions out of the business thinking let's snowball it. Right. So let's put much more of that money. You know, we were, we were paid salaries that were minimal. Both Joe and I, uh, early days were living in Southeast Asia. So our costs weren't high. Um, and for a long time, we were making under a hundred thousand dollars a year. But living in the Philippines or Vietnam or Thailand or whatever, it's relatively easy to do that, right? You can live a good life for $60,000, Um, And so early days, we really just wanted to roll profits into growth. We're like, look, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll cash out at some point. We'll take distributions later. And then uh, eventually we started making enough, enough money where we weren't able to spend it as wisely. Like the growth opportunities weren't super clear on the marketing and sales side. We said, look, now's a pretty good time to start taking profits out of the business. And coincidentally, it's pretty close to probably when we, we read profit first or maybe a little little bit after we started taking yeah. profits. But um, yeah, so we started taking profits and then um, now we just regularly take distributions. We keep enough cash in the bank to weather like a bad uh, downturn or, you know, any kind of problems uh, that we might run into um, uh, and keep some runway in there so we can keep a healthy business. But anything above and beyond that we take out as distributions at this point. Uh, keep in mind that we were a bootstrap company. Um, we didn't raise any funds for Empire Flippers. It was like it's completely owned by my business partner and I. And then we have a, a piece set aside for our team as well. So like we didn't have, you know, like a you have to grow at all costs. You can't, you know, any profits are going to, you know, some private equity or VC group. Like it's just Joe and I making yeah. that call. So it was yeah. a private company a bootstrap company, it's a lot easier uh, for us to decide when to take profits. Like, hey man, what do you think? What are we doing this quarter? <laughs> yeah. How much runway do you keep in the business? Because that's something I 
like I oftentimes like discuss it with myself if I like do I have too much runway do I have too little runway because like basically if you just take like x like in in months not in cash like how much runway would you basically have if is revenue would go to zero just your expenses like what what did you come up with as like the right number there yeah so um it's a great question we we you know we talked to our accountant about it and he's like look based on our kind of business model Inbarbers is very cash profitable or very cash forwarded. So we receive a lot of the money kind of upfront and early. Um, and based on our current position, you know, our account's like, look, probably somewhere between two to three months uh, yeah. at zero revenue is is fine for yeah. you guys. You're perfectly yeah. fine yeah. there. So we we typically stay in that range, somewhere between two to three months of total expenses yeah. uh, in the bank to kind of cover everything. And above and beyond that, we'll take uh, distributions. Yeah. But just to to put a flag in that for the audience that's with 13 years of history of you know how much you make basically so uh, just as a little flag there for people who, who, who to take that with a grain of salt meaning if you're very early your number might need to be a bit higher there yes well for sure um i also think uh i mean you can it might even be lower early days right because you're like riding the rail trying to like, this is before you have like significant growth or like significant teams or whatever you're like just you know do whatever you can like make the business work right just get traction something right and you're like running (laughs) running on fumes like that's we we, we were like that i think early days yeah Yeah. i i mean same for us i mean in the very early days i think it's always close to that especially if you try to grow early on um let's switch gears completely and just like dig into your expertise so most of the people listening are SaaS founders, likely between like 500k ARR to 5 million ARR, and most of them don't think about how to acquire companies to grow faster. I would love to for you to answer that question. If what would your business? I'm a SaaS founder. What does my business need to look like so that it makes sense for me to acquire either acquire another SaaS company? or acquire maybe even other assets, maybe small free tools, content sites, and so on, to just increase the, basically have my growth trajectory. Yeah, media companies, there's a lot of different things you can do in SaaS. So um, one of the problems, well, let's talk about like the downsides and upsides of a SaaS company acquiring other SaaS companies. Um, as you look at other SaaS companies, you know, you'll notice, oh, well, this is a product that may be interesting. They offer a product or services that may or may or be interesting to, you know, our current user base, right? Or their current user base may or may be interested in kind of the, the SaaS that we are offering. Um, so you're, you're acquiring kind of a customer base that you can uh, bolt on to your current business. So a lot of times people will go like the hub and spoke model. They have kind of their main SaaS or, or type of company. And they're hiring like tangentially a related companies around it. Um, and then they either run it internally or they bring in outside founders uh, to run it, or they even keep the previous founder on. So that's one way to do it. Um, the downside is like, if you're bringing on these companies and there's not, well, sometimes they come with technical debt. Sometimes the platform or the software they're using doesn't really jive with kind of the developers you have. So you're now bringing on a, a whole different developer set and a whole different set of tools and problems that come with that. Um, so there's some of that, but really I think the customer base is, and the kind of like, um, uh, the kind of like the, the target, the content that it's around, I think is really helpful. So if you have a SaaS business that's in a particular space, that's around, um, 
don't know, let's say it's a, I don't know, some kind of like a, um, Dropbox bolt-on tool or whatever, like hiring other SaaS businesses that have customers around that, that may be interested in it, that, um, you know, maybe it's a, a much larger uh, companies, uh, let's see, uh, you can even hire something like some kind of accounting tool that has a whole bunch of customers that would be a great fit for this business, or, you know, um, that you can add that accounting tool to your current customers and like double their revenue based on your, your much larger. So basically cross and like buy something and then cross and upsell in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Or even buy a company that has, you know, the really good growth marketing approach and you're doing an aqua hire where you're basically just hiring kind of their marketing team uh to bake that into your your larger company uh, uh out of the acquisition so yeah there's lots of different ways to skin it and you, you know if you're a SaaS company you don't have to necessarily buy a SaaS business too um you can be buy uh you can be purchasing like a let's say an e-com or an affiliate site or particularly um um like a media brand or communities right um that might be of interest uh newsletters are pretty hot right now. So there's lots of different ways you can go after it. Uh, I think the newsletter business is particularly interesting if it's related to your industry. So. Let's maybe split that convo there. And then if I would want to acquire a SaaS, we have like the end of 2023 right now. What's the rough multiple into of the ARR that I have to, to pay up basically, or, or do I have to expect in a way? Sure, it depends on business per business, but just like a very rough range. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be really rough, but um, yeah. <laughs> t- typically in our space and at the kind of this size, much larger businesses are sold at very different multiples. You're looking at somewhere between three times to six times. That's SDE, seller's discretionary earnings. So, um, and it, depending on the SaaS and their, uh, their margins, that could be one to two times, one to three times uh, ARR. Um, it's really just going to depend on the particular business. But um, acquisitions are typically done on seller discretionary earnings. So what that means is like a lot of early stage startups that have revenue, but have you know, s- significant expenses, haven't reached profitability. It's kind of a tougher sale at this point um, because buyers, acquirers are really looking at that SDE. So you can buy on AR, but it's really one to two times. So you're talking three to five, three to six times SDE. And does SDE include the founder's salary or like what's the dummy version of uh, how you get to that number? Yeah, typically it will include the founder's salary. So any money that the founders, particularly smaller companies, any money that the founder's making would be included. For much larger companies, um, yeah, it won't include founder's salary because you figure you're going to have to replace that, uh, you know, owner operator or that CEO or whatever with someone else. And so those costs are not going to be included. And really, all of that is a negotiation point from the buyer's perspective. So as a seller, you always want to include that. From a buying perspective, you're like, eh, I'm going to have to replace that person anyway, so I want to discount it. And normally, there's some kind of negotiation that's done around that uh, that makes sense for both parties. Some of the best negotiations when you're trying to negotiate like what the multiple should be and like what you're basing that multiple on, you know, we provide a framework for that. Um, but that's just a framework to help people understand like, you know, kind of what they should expect. Ultimately, it comes down to you know buyer and seller negotiation. Uh, for example, at Empire Flippers, you can go uh, to our site. We have a valuation tool where you can fill in all of your metrics for your business, and we'll give you a pretty rough estimate based on our experience in the market and like what your multiple will be and about what it will sell for. There's no guarantee that's going to happen, and buyers come in and try to negotiate. In some cases, um, buyers come in, you have multiple buyers, and they actually negotiate it up, so you might even do better. They were what you originally enlist for. 
In today's market, that's a little bit different. So there's a smaller buyer pool. There's less buyers competing for businesses. So you should expect typically lower offers. You should expect some kind of like seller earn out, um, you know, things like that. So you're going it, to, it's, it's definitely more of a buyer's market today than it was in 2020, 2021. Yeah. And then coming to the second part with basically being a SaaS company and not buying SaaS companies, but by buying like newsletters or like media outlets. I mean, we all know that the big guys did it. HubSpot bought the hustle for like, like I think like 27 million was like the reported number. Um, when do you think that is a smart thing to do? Is it just basically as soon as I have the money and if there's like a media company, like, let's say I have like a, a referral tool for SaaS companies. Like I help other, other people like basically get their referrals, get their affiliates. And so I'm like targeting like the, the, the marketing manager or whatever. Should I just buy like a newsletter for marketing managers? Or like, how how would you would you go about that whole thing? So at Imperfectors, when we're vetting a business, right, when we're taking a business on to sell, um, it goes through a very fairly long slog and like verifying the revenue and verifying the users and verifying the downloads and verifying everything. So it, it's vetted. Um, so you're buying from us. I mean, look, do your own due diligence. You have to, as a buyer, that's your responsibility. But like you generally have a safer opportunity, but that's not always the case. Sometimes the business you want to acquire is not on Empire Clubbers. And so um, one of the problems with like media organizations or media buys like that is everyone in media is fluffing their numbers to be uh, to put it mildly, right? Everyone's trying to like make it look like they have more subscribers, more views, more reviews, more whatever, more newsletter or subscribers than um or they have, you know, they bought lists or something. It's really hard to tell, judge the eff effectiveness and efficiency of their kind of newsletter and how that's working. A great way to test the waters, a try before you buy, if you will, is to advertise, right? So if you're a SaaS company, uh, uh, get some sponsored positioning in that newsletter, get some sponsored positioning and see what the resonance is with your product offering with that media purchase. Do they have an audience where your offering resonates with them? Is there some kind of, do you get some kind of traction out of presenting what you have to their audience? And it's a really good way to kind of test the waters. And maybe there's a little bit of traction, maybe there's a lot, but that's going to let you get further into bed uh, in that acquisition and dig in a little further. Um, it, it's maybe uh, at the worst case, if you don't acquire it, maybe there's kind of a rev share that they're willing to do. Or if it was super good for you as a SaaS founder, don't do the rev share, just keep paying, right? And soak up that <laughs> yeah. sweet, sweet user base, whatever. But if but you know, if it's like kind of middling and like they're a little nervous about it, you're a little nervous about it, you can do a rev share with them and maybe you don't require it, but you get a really good partner in trying to grow your business that's you know invested in your success too. So worst case, you get a great rev share person and best case, you can acquire it outright and uh, have a great new marketing arm. Absolutely. And then we're slowly getting uh, to the end of our time here. What's three things you would do different, differently if you would start like the whole journey all over, basically? Three things. I don't know if I got I have three exactly lined up, but one is, I mean, I said, one is, yeah, one yeah, good yeah. One is totally fine. <laughs> sure, sure. What I said earlier, you know, being slow to hire was a bit of a yep. problem. Um, I think 
you know, maybe more audacious kind of growth uh, would have been smart. One of the things I, I feel really bad about is, uh, you know, Joe and I, my business partner, we um, we had a podcast going that was that was successful and doing quite well. And we just kind of like lost it. Like we stopped doing it. And I was still doing some interviews and stuff, but we stopped doing it. It was something I really enjoyed. I, like I enjoyed interviewing people. I enjoyed kind of doing the podcast. And I'm disappointed we stopped that. So um, in terms of like that, I'm, I'm on the marketing side. So I kind of like think very um, heavily towards the marketing. But I think continuing that would have been a good idea. Now, that was, you know, we're talking, we started our podcast like 2012 or so. You know, the media landscapes changed significantly. But I'd say as a SaaS founder, if you're doing something, some kind of like pieces of content that you enjoy doing and is getting some traction, stick with it stick with it right because if you kind of like lose that it may be hard to get it back or the media landscape may have changed to where you know um uh it's much harder to get traction in the space than it was previously so yeah and so basically also like playing the long game in terms of the brand building side of things right yeah that's actually one of our um uh values for the company was like uh we we um we constantly um, skip short-term value for long-term gain. So, you know, we're always thinking about that snowball effect, particularly on the marketing side where, you know, we'll put the time in, we'll put the groundwork in because a lot of other companies aren't willing to do that. A lot of other people aren't willing to do that. They're not willing to like put the work in and make pennies or very small returns on initially. They're like, ah, I'd rather go pay traffic. And they, they're like, okay, because they're VC backed, whatever. They have to go spend 20, 30, $40,000 a month on media purchases or whatever, because they need that crazy growth. Where if you're bootstrapped or you're kind of like earlier stage or you're just willing to put in the hustle, putting in that kind of like long, thoughtful approach to content marketing over a long period of time can be super beneficial. That's what we did. Can you tell a recent story or like the last decision you remember where you actively thought the short term would be like the easy thing now, but let's go with like the hard long term decision? Yeah. Um, good question. It's not recent, but definitely with our podcast, um, we, we didn't have much at all. In fact, look, we, I wasn't even interested in, in, in doing a podcast. We, uh, we were visiting some friends, the, the tropical NBA guys, uh, the yeah. recycle tropical, they have the dynamite circles, a community they built. And we were talking to them and, and we we're doing, just doing some banter back and forth. And they're like, you guys should do a podcast. And we're like, Oh, you guys are so great at it. We would suck. And they're like, no, no, no we kind of suck too when we started out. So I went back and listened to their early episodes because like, they'd been doing it a while and they just sounded so polished. I was like, God, there, there's no way we could do that. I went back and listened to their early episodes. And I was like, wow, these guys suck too. So um, <laughs> that just made it a lot easier for, for me to like want to get involved. And, uh, and, you know, we started doing it. We got very little traction at first. We put out, you know, uh, you know, tens of podcasts you know, 40 podcasts before we started getting any traction. And so, you know, that's a thing that we thought would have some value long-term where we're getting zero value in return out of that, right? That was, there was yeah, nothing to us. Um, another thing we do is we, um, we uh, are willing to tell, like we be very transparent about our business, even when it's painful or even when it's embarrassing. So uh, we had a, a deal where this early days, we got scammed by some credit card scammers. Um, out of Russia, they, they were doing some credit card scams and, you know, got us for a fair amount of money and, and, you know, we could have just ignored it or not talked about it or whatever. It was embarrassing and, and frustrating. 
Uh, but we said, look, why don't we just put it out there so other people can be aware like of this, you know, how this works and like what our kind of steps were, how we thought through it. And, you know, there was some risk because we were like, look, we're going to be doing business with these guys and they're so easily scammed by these credit card scammers. Like, are they going to scam us or are they, are they suckers or whatever? Um, but I think most people just appreciate the fact that we're like, look, this is what happened to us. Here's our approach. And here's how we thought it through. Um, and I think we were thinking long term. Yes, in the short term, you know, some people probably wouldn't be happy about it. And we took some shit online for it. But in the long term, we're thinking it's better to be transparent, open and honest with our audience. And it's going to build like long term trust that we need to build a solid brand in the industry. Yeah. I mean, even that, what, like 10 minutes ago, you openly shared that you overhired, which is like a thing basically no one talks about. A ton of people overhired, especially in like the 2021 20, uh, era, basically. So even that's like one of the things where, where you, you can already feel that. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, we've, I had to do layoffs as a manager at a company and I've had to do layoffs at our company and it is, I wasn't sure, you know, when I had to do it as a manager, I was like, you know, I wasn't sure who did what, maybe these, you know, the employees weren't good enough or whatever. No, it's strictly down to the founders, right? The founders or the, the management team running the business. Um, when you're laying off, it just exposes naked um a problem or a mistake that you made uh, in managing and running the business so yeah 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 i mean that if you have to let someone go because he or she's just like severely underperforming that's like one thing but yeah the what you're telling that's like gut-wrenching like we yeah. had that like one 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 phase of the company we we had that happen like a couple of years ago as well damn that sucks that's just bad The saving grace, um, or at least what we tell ourselves is like, you know, you have to do it for the health and the long-term survivability of the business. So, yeah. you know, ultimately some people are losing their jobs, but a lot of people are going to be able to keep your jobs because you keep the business. I mean, yeah. your job as a founder, yeah. you know, if, if you have investors or not, you're an investor in your own business. Your job as a founder is to keep the business afloat, to keep it alive. Right. And so in downturns and difficult times, You have to remember that to so keep it alive. And so you've got a whole bunch of people on your life raft. You've got a whole bunch of people on the ship. You know, some people aren't going to make it, but you want to get as many people across the, the finish line as possible. And you want those to be the right people. That's a perfect way to end. Justin, thanks a ton for coming on. Thanks, Nicholas. I appreciate it, man. If you like this episode, then you'll love the SaaS Operator, a weekly newsletter brought to you by Early Node. With actionable insights from SaaS experts in the industry, delivered right to your inbox every Tuesday for free. Visit earlynode.com to subscribe.